שיעור 189, The Expulsion of Ishmael, The Problem of a God's Eye View. Rav Chanoch Waxman. First of all, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Chanoch uh, Waxman, and the title of this year is The Expulsion of Ishmael, The Problem of a God's Eye View. The plan for this year this morning is, as I discussed, uh, the name of the year is The Expulsion of Ishmael, The Problem of a God's Eye View. And as the title indicates, I would like to discuss, fundamentally, Parakaf Aleph, uh, chapter 21 of Sefer Breshit. Uh, what I would like to do in this year is, to some extent, uh, discuss a classic, famous question raised by many of the Parshanim, but to try to um, uh, move towards an unusual formulation of this question. I'll explain uh, what I mean by this as we go along. And also to um, talk a little bit about the role of Perak Kaf Aleph in Sefer Breshit overall, and hopefully this will become clear as we move along. So without further ado, I'd like to ask you to take a look at the text of the Perak, uh, Perak Kaf Aleph of Sefer Breshit. You look at this either in, in your Tanakh, um, or on the handout that you have in front of you, which is source number one, from Breshit Perak Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Aleph through Kaf Aleph. And for right now, I'd like to ask you to read just the first two artificial paragraphs in the handout from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Yud Gimel. So to read the first 13 Pesukim of Perak Kaf Aleph, uh, to re-familiarize yourselves with that for a few moments, that would be great, and then we'll begin our shiur. So take a few moments. Yes, that's chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. And that's chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. Okay, so we plunge right into it and get into the thick of things. I'll begin by reading the beginning of Parakaf Aleph of chapter 21, which says as follows in Pasuk Aleph. V'ashem pakadet Sarah kasher amar v'yas Hashem l'sarah kasher diber. God remembered Sarah as he had promised and he did as he had said he would. Uh, what happened? Well, of course, we, we know the story. Pasuk Bet. V'atar v'telet Sarah l'avram ben l'zgunav l'amoed asher diber oto alokim. So she had a child at the exact promised time. And the child is named Yitzchak in Pasuk Gimel, uh, as was already commanded by God uh, previously. As we move along, uh, a great celebration erupts, because this is an occasion for, for great joy. Uh, we jump to Pasuk Dalet for the moment. You had the, uh, the Milah, uh, the circumcision of Yitzchak on the eighth day. 
And then the Torah goes on to tell us uh, that in Pasukei, that Avram was 100 years old when Yitzchak was born. And finally, in Pasuk Vav in Zion, we have two verses that attest to the great joy, the great simcha of Sarah upon the birth of her son. And if I'll read Vav in Zion, verses 6 and 7 for the moment, Vatomer Sarah tzchok asali elokim, kol Yitzchak li. Tzchok here should be translated not so much as laughter or joy, perhaps celebration uh, is the best possible translation. Kol Shomei Yitzchak li. Everyone who hears will laugh, will celebrate, will be joyous, because this is an amazing thing. Why is it so amazing? Well, Pasuk Zion tells us why. This is a little bit of a piece of poetry that's a bit hard to translate, but it means something like, Who would have dared to utter that to Avram, Sarah would suckle a son, because I gave him birth in his old age, but of course, she's referring to her advanced age as well. She's 90 uh, or so, uh, which is, of course, quite miraculous and a cause of celebration. So if we think about it, first part, the first part of our parak, parak Kaf Aleph, which runs from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Zion, verses 1 through 7, is a very, very nice and distinct unit. Louder? It's a very nice and distinct unit, uh, which can be thought of as the birth of Yitzchak, uh, the circumcision of Yitzchak, the celebration of the birth of Yitzchak. And one should note that even in this small little section, the term Yitzchak, based on the stem tzchok, tzadik chet kuf, which means laughter, joy, celebration, etc. and the like, appears five times. And it appears in two different variations. Three times it's the name Yitzchak, and you can note this on the sheet with the bold function that you have there. And twice it means celebration or joy, as in the last tupso came in Pasik Vav and Zion. So the, the first segment, which is the birth of Yitzchak, the circumcision of Yitzchak, the joy of Sarah ends, and then we shift, and we shift in time to the next set of Sukkim, and let's read on a bit further, beginning in Pasukhet. Ve'igdal hayela, that's a marker that we've shifted in time. He's grown up. How much has he grown up? Ve'igmal, and he was weaned. Well, figure about three or so. So it's about three years later, uh, and that's the gap between Pasuk Zion and Chet, hence the little artificial paragraph break, which the computer allowed me to do. Uh, on your sheet for those who have the Daf Mekorot. Uh, so here's another great celebration, a great party, which is the party of the weaning, which kind of parallels the party of the circumcision. So she saw the son of Hagar HaMitzrit that was born to Avraham, Mitzachek. Now I'm not going to translate that because what should it mean, Mitzachek? It should mean something like Celebrating. It's a party. Who doesn't celebrate at a party? Pasuk Yud. She's not happy this time around. Get rid of, chase out, uh, uh, exile uh, this maidservant and her son. He will not inherit with my son Yitzchak. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Avram is not too pleased. It was uh, bad in his eyes. Uh, he didn't think it was a good idea because of Beno. You should note the contrast in the way the text portrays the perspective of Avraham. The perspective of Avraham regarding the Ben Hama, his identity is not Ben Hama, uh, which appears twice in Pasuk Yud. If you go back to Pasuk Yud again, Sarai's perspective is that Ishmael, we know his name, his name has not yet actually appeared in the parak at all, uh, that he's just a Ben Hama. Avram's perspective on some level, it reflected in the formulation of Pasuk Yud Aleph, verse 11, 
because of his son. Uh, but uh, there's a principle in halacha. And loosely translated, that means when there's a conflict between two verses, they stand in conflict until a third verse, or in this case a third voice, comes and decides the conflict. And that third voice that comes and decides the conflict appears in Pasuk Yudbet. Don't it be bad in your eyes for the lad and your maidservant. Everything that's right says, listen to her. Right? So, effectively, uh, what part two of our parak is, from Pasuk Chet through Pasuk Yigimel, this can be formulated different ways. You can view it as the events of the second party, the weaning party of uh, uh, Yitzchak, which was not as much of a celebration as it should have been. You can view it as the conflict between Avram and Sarai as to, uh, Sarah as to whether Yishmael should be sent away, or you can view it as the precipitating event, the build-up to the expulsion of Yishmael, which happens immediately, beginning in the next part of the parak. Take a look in Pasuk Yedalid. And he sent her away. So exactly as God has commanded, Avram listens to uh, Sarah uh, and sends Yishmael and Sarah away uh, in the beginning of Pasigudal, which of course is the remainder of, uh, of the parak. Now, you might think that quite obviously um, the first two units of the parak that I asked you to look at, Pasig Aleph through Yud Gimel, are somewhat of a coherent storyline. First and foremost, they're united by the term Tzchok, or Yitzchak, right? The term Yitzchak appears uh, six times. It appears, uh, pardon me, not, the term Tzchok, or variations of the Tzadik Chet Kuf uh, stem, appear nine times from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Gimel. Six times it appears as the name Yitzchak. And three times it appears as the laughter, the mitzachek, the tzchok, right? Uh, of those three times that it appears as the joy, celebration, tzchok, mitzachek, play on language, which unites this part of the parak. The first two are found respectively in Pasuk Vav and Zion uh, that we talked about earlier. And of course, the third time uh, that it's found as meaning mitzachek is in Pasuk Tet, Vatera Sarah et Ben Hagar Mitzrat Asheyel Dal Avram Mitzachek. Uh, so they're united in terms of language. They're also uh, uh, united in terms of unfolding of the plot, in terms of theme. There's the promise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to, the promise of God to Avram and Sarah that you'll have a son. The son is born, the son is named, the son is weaned. And then the other one is sent away, right? It's the story of the joy of Sarah. And the joy of Sarah is not really complete until Yishmael is sent away. So there's a kind of unfolding of the plot here in a kind of natural way, which makes perfect sense. And that's really a sketch to some extent, or a beginning sketch of the material we're going to be looking at. Now, what are the questions, or what is the question that I said I wanted to deal with? Well, um, almost many of the Parshanim, almost all the Parshanim, raise a famous question regarding the motivation and the justification of the action of the characters uh, here. And I would like to begin uh, by talking about, obviously, the two main characters in the story up until this point. And the two main characters in the story up until this point are, are whom? Obvious. Sarah and Avraham. 
Um, and really, to some extent, Hagar and Yishmael, they're not really characters, this kind of objects, so to speak. They're talked about in the third person. We know nothing about their perspective. The only perspective that the Torah is interested in here is really the perspective of uh, Sarah and Avram, respectively. And if so, uh, when dealing with the question of perhaps uh, um, motivation and justification of their actions, we should focus on uh, Sarah and Avraham, at least at first glance. So let's begin with Sarah. What is uh, Sarah's motivation? Um, and are her actions uh, justified? Now, this is actually a relatively easy question uh, to answer on some plane. Uh, but nevertheless, the Parshanim spent uh, a little bit of time on it. And as part of a segue into uh, the issues I want to discuss, I think it is important to take a look at some of the uh, Parshanim here. Take a look at Rashbam. I know of three different answers uh, for this question found in the Parshanim. And maybe we'll go through them very, very briefly, at least uh, one or two of them. Take a look in uh, source number two. Um, Rashbam, on Breshit Parakaf, Aleph Pasik Tet, says as follows. Mitzachek, um, right? Oh, well, Yishmael, or the Ben Hama, is also Mitzachek. He's also celebrating or being joyous, right? It's almost kind of strange, the precipitating event as to why suddenly um, uh, Sarah wants to send away Yishmael is the celebration of Yishmael. He too is part of the family, and he too is quite happy and joyous about the, the birth and the weaning of his baby brother. If you can even see it in the text for the moment, uh, take a look in Pasuk Tet again. He too is celebrating. But what's her immediate reaction to this? Take a look at Pasuk Yod. Expel her and her son. In other words, what's, what's wrong? In other words, what, what did she see? Uh, what is the precipitating event here? What, what disturbs her uh, so much? What motivates her actions? We can already raise that question from the, from the text. So Ashbam, addressing this point, exactly in that word in source number two, says as follows. Mitzachek. Shekvar gadal harbe. His celebration is not a childish celebration, right? But it's the celebration of someone who is mature, who understands the significance of the situation. Uh, and mitzachek is a siman, is a sign of the maturity of the ben hama, according to Rashbam. Uh, and he says, Shekvar gadal harbe, velo shahoto. She did not want to leave him there. Pen birushat aviv im uh, lest he would want to inherit uh, along with uh, Yitzchak in the Yerusha. And in fact, Rashmam is well-rooted in the Psukim here. Uh, take a look immediately afterwards. What does she say after seeing the Tzchok, the celebration of this mature young lad? He's a Nar, he's maybe 13, 14. It's a bit hard to know uh, how old Yishmael is at this point. Um, so take a look in Pasuk Yud. V'atomer l'avram garesh ha'ma azot v'et uh, expel this maidservant and her son. That's exactly what she talks about. She talks about inheritance. In other words, according to Rashbam, and I think this is justified in the Psukim, uh, Sarai's motivation and the justification of her motivation is primarily legal. Uh, in the end of the day, uh, Yishmael is a Ben Amma. Uh, she is the child, he is the child of a maidservant. If he's the child of a maidservant, then he actually does not have a legal right to inherit 
neither the worldly goods of Avraham nor the spiritual estate of Avraham as well. Uh, and as such, um, Sarai notes that he does not have a legal right to inherit either the material or the spiritual inheritance of Avraham. And since he might think that he is old enough and uh, he is worthy enough to inherit as well, therefore Sarai says, uh, expel him. Now you can even argue that that's exactly the conflict between Avram and Sarai here in part two of the text. Sarah, pardon me. According to Sarah, uh, Ishmael is not a legitimate son, he's just a Ben Amah. And Avraham sees him existentially, psychologically, spiritually as Beno. That's exactly, it's Ra in his eyes, al-Beno. And God comes and he is Machriah. He decides regarding this Machlok and this difference of opinion regarding the status of Yishmael, whether he's a Ben Amman, does not have legal rights, or whether he's Ben Avraham, a Beno, and does have legal rights. And you can even perhaps... You can infer carefully from the language that God uses in uh, Pasuk uh, Yudbet uh, carefully regarding this point. Take a look at Pasuk Yudbet again. Uh, he is not Ben Avraham. He is not Beno. God refers to him as Ben Hama who is Zerah Avraham. And that's kind of interesting. That's an intermediate status, one might argue, between the position of Sarah on the one hand and the position of Avraham on the other hand. It's not just a Ben Amah with no rights, and it's not Beno, but it's Ben Amah that is Zerah Avraham. Uh, and without going to the implications of what might that mean, that uh, could be an interesting way to read the Psukim, the dynamic, the conflict, and the resolution here in these verses, and that's the approach of Rashbam. And Sarai is motivated and justified by a kind of almost pure, dry legalism uh, regarding rights uh, and law, and that's the opinion of Rashbam. In contrast, Ibn Ezra understands Sarai's motivation in a completely different way, uh, and let's take a look at the text of Ibn Ezra. I'd like to expand upon that a little bit. Take a look at source number three uh, for, the, for the moment. So Ibn Ezra says in source number three, Pasuk um, Tet, the top uh, source on the second side of your sheet. Mitzachek, on the same words, Kichain Minhag Kolnar. This was a, a normal thing to do, to celebrate, to be joyous, to be kidding around, whatever it was that Mitzachek means here. But here's the key term in Ibn Ezra. Vatikenebo, uh, she was envious or jealous. Ba'avor heyoto godol nibna. Uh, because uh, he was older than her son. I think the key term in Ibn Ezra is Vatikanebo, she was jealous or envious. And Ibn Ezra moves the motivation, justification question of the actions of Sarah from the plain, from the realm of dry legalism uh, to the living, tumultuous, uh, and chaotic realm of inner motivation. And he refers to jealousy, the realm of the psychological space uh, of Sarah's life. Now, if you really think about it, we can easily expand upon uh, Ibn Ezra's point here and understand that Sarah's motivation is somewhat personal, right? Why is it somewhat personal? Well, this is really because this is not her first rodeo uh, with Hagar uh, and Yishmael, or Hagar and the son, and all the kind of very complicated psychological and even marital questions uh, that are tied up with the status of Hagar and the Ben Ha'ama. Uh, now, you don't have it on your sheet, but I just want to point out something you kind of really know. Uh, if you remember, 
back in Paraket Zion of the Torah, uh, back in chapter uh, 16, when Hagar was first given to um, Avraham, well, uh, things didn't go necessarily the way that uh, Sarah intended. In Paraket Zion, Pasuk Dalid, and Avram uh, had relations with uh, Hagar, and she saw that she became pregnant. Uh, and her mistress, Sarah, became light in her eyes. She began to scorn or mock, perhaps, uh, Sarah. Uh, and Hagar and her son, and she chased her away, and then she came back. Hagar and her son symbolize Sarah's lack of status, uh, or Sarah's lack of status. Hagar and her son symbolize, in Sarah's mind, the long years of being a barren woman, the suffering, the pain, the anguish, the, uh, the nagging feeling of loss, a lack of shlemut, uh, and without a shadow of a doubt. This is Sarah's greatest joyous moment. It's the time of her vindication. The story of Parakaf Aleph is the triumph of Sarah. And yet here, here is this living symbol of all of that suffering. So it makes perfect psychological sense uh, that uh, she would like Sarah and the Ben Ham, uh, she would like Hagar and the Ben Hamagan. And if we even think about it, right? Well, Hagar is what kind of shivcha? What is she's a? And it's said over and over in our psukim. She's a shivcha mitzrit. Now, wait a second. Where where did Avram and Sarah or Sarai pick up a shivcha mitzrit? Now we know very little about the the slave market or the amam market of the ancient Near East, and it could be there was international trade uh, on this market. But I would venture to guess that most probably. Um, they picked her up on that sojourn back in Egypt, and we go back to Parakid Bet, to chapter 12, just for a moment, where I think the uh, Torah goes out of our, its way to hint something to us. After Avram says, oh, you're not really my wife, you're my sister, and effectively she's taken to Beit Paro, and Avram gets lots of gifts, exactly as he somewhat quasi-expected, in Parakid Bet, Pasik Ted Zayin, Avram etiv baburav vadim he had female maidservants. So I'm going to venture to guess that most probably Hagar is part of the gift package that Avram got back in Mitzrayim for giving up his wife to, to Paro. Effectively, she is literally the replacement uh, of, uh, of Sarah from the very, very beginning. And therefore, it's absolutely no surprise that on the psychological plane, at this moment of greatest triumph and joy, Sarah needs to have uh, um, Hagar and her son gone. And I think this is another way to explain Ibn Ezra, a version of Ibn Ezra, that the motivation and the justification is primarily psychological or spiritual. It's part of the life story, the marriage story, the narrative of the life of Sarah on some level. And that's how we should explain it, rather, or in addition to the legalistic point already made by uh, Rashbam. So, in other words, I don't think there's any difficulty whatsoever to explain the motivation of the character of uh, Sarah here in the story. Likewise, although the question was raised by the Parshanim regarding Avraham Avinu, um, the question of motivation and justification. I'm not sure uh, whether there's a real problem understanding the motivation or justification of Avraham in the story. And take a look at Ibn Ezra 
in the uh, continuation of his words in Pasuk Yedalad, where he deals with the question of the motivation, the justification of the second character uh, uh, in the story of Avraham. Pasuk Yedalad. V'rabim yitmahu me'avraham. And many would ask the question regarding Avraham. Eh kireish b'no. How did he expel his son? He thought of him as a son. How did he expel him? V'gam shalach ben imo rekam. He also sent away the servant almost empty-handed, which is a halachic violation of the requirement of sending away a servant with lavish gifts. And where is the givingness of his heart? So there's a dual moral problem that Ibn Ezra here raises vis-a-vis Avraham. And the dual problem is, one, how could he send away his son? And two, how could he send away the servants empty-handed? Um, and Ibn Ezra answers as follows. The question is upon those who question. Avram did exactly as God commanded him. Um, now, we can go back to the text to see this inside. This is very, very important. Um, Avram did feel bad about sending away his Ben, uh, uh, the Ben Hama that he thought of as Beno. But look what God says to him in Pasuk Yudbet at the very end of part two of our story. Don't let it be bad in your eyes. Everything that Sarah says, listen to her voice. So Avram is off the hook. His motivation and the justification of his motivation is divine fiat, divine command. God commands, and therefore Avraham listens, and that is the character of Avraham. Obedience to the divine command is not surprising. Ethically, he's exactly in the right place. He views this child as Beno, he doesn't want to send him away, and he simply follows the uh, divine command. Great. Ibn Ezra adds to this, if you take a look in the next little, uh, uh, next line right there, um, he says as follows, um, uh, um, in the second little paragraph there, Lechem v'chemet mayim in Atana Halagar, regarding what he gave to Agar later on in the Psukim, v'sam al-shechma v'amar la, k'chi itcha banecha v'yishalcha, v'yitachem sh'natan la kesef v'zahav v'lo pireish ha-katov. Ibn Ezra is bothered by the second problem uh, of the lack of gifting, which had to happen. So he says, oh, probably he even gave her gift, and it's just not mentioned in the Psukim. Uh, and here Ibn Ezra serves to robustly defend uh, Avraham, earlier on he pointed out that God had said to send the way to come. So either it's simply a matter of divine fiat or he actually did give gifts, but the problem is somewhat resolved. This brings us to what I view as the first very, very serious problem uh, in the parak, and I would like to raise a question which I'm not really sure that one can raise, but I'd like to raise it nevertheless. Until this point, we've considered our story as if there are two characters in the story. There's the character of Sarah, who wants the Ben Amagan, and there's the character of Avram, who wants him to stay, and there's a kind of conflict. Eventually, God decides like the side of Sarah. And we raise the issue of the motivation and the justification of the decision of the first two characters, Sarah and Avram, and we dealt with it as the Parshanim led us to have to deal with it. But what we don't understand is the motivation of the third character here. Because in the end of the day, it's the third character who makes the decision. As I told you, there's a conflict, and the hachra, the decision, is made by God. But we know nothing here about the motivation, or so to speak, quote-unquote, the justification of God's decision. God decides to listen to Sarah's voice, tells Avram, listen to Sarah's voice, and says, listen to Sarah, and Avram does it. Great, but why? 
Uh, and I'm not really sure you can actually ask this question about the motivation, motivation or justification of God's actions, but I think the psukim and the unfolding of the story here really does beg and force us to ask the question, why does God, God side with Sarah? And that, I think, is what I meant by the title, The Problem of a God's Eye View. I would like to understand God's perspective. Uh, God is also a character in Tanakh, uh, and to understand exactly what his motivation or justification here is. And that's one question I want to try to address. Now, another problem I wanted to try to address in the parak, uh, one we haven't raised yet. Let's move forward a little bit and see if we can raise a second issue. Uh, let's put this on the side. We'll come back to this. Go back to the text uh, that you have in source number one. And let's pick it up uh, in Pasuk Yudalid, um, which uh, begins with the actual expulsion of Yishmael, which says as follows. So he sent her away. End of story. What is the story here in Parakaf Aleph? The story in Parakaf Aleph is the birth of Yitzchak, the joy of Sarah, the expulsion of Yishmael. The expulsion has happened. That's it. Pasuk Yudalid, on a certain uh, thematic plane, really should be the end of the story. Yet, nevertheless, things kind of continue on. Take a look at the continuation of Pasuk Yudalid. Vatelach, vatetaba midbar be'er shava, she wandered around. Pasuk tetva, vayichlua mayim and achemet, the water was finished. Vateshlecha de'el tachat achat asichem, she threw him down under one of like the shrubs over there. And then she went and she sat far away. She didn't want to see the child die. Uh, and then, like, I don't know, Malach calls to her and, and, and then eventually they open up her eyes as she found some sort of a well. And then we find out that Yishmael grew up and we find out that he, he, he found that his profession, he got married to a woman from Mitzrayim. All kinds of really interesting details about the wanderings of Hagar and Yishmael, the life of Hagar and Yishmael, the future of Yishmael, and really, I would argue that all of this seems a bit excessive or lowly inyan, or not really part of the plot of the parak. Which kind of brings me to the second question I would like to discuss in the Shi'or. Who really cares about the drama of Hagar and Yishmael, or the wanderings of Hagar and Yishmael in the desert, or the future of Yishmael? And on some plane, almost all of part three of our parak, from Pasuk Yedal through Pasuk Kaf Aleph, would seem to be extraneous and unnecessary. I would like to understand how it fits in thematically to the development of Parak Kaf Aleph, and that's the second question I would like to discuss. So, to review, the first question, the motivation of the character of God in agreeing to the expulsion of Yishmael, and the second issue, the excessive detail uh, in the Tanakh's description of the wanderings of Yishmael and Agar in the Midbar. Now, I have an idea that I want to share with you, uh, but before I get to my idea, uh, I would like to point out that there is one parshan, and some modern contemporary thinkers as well, who have dealt with the first question I raised, uh, the motivation of God for the expulsion of, of Yishmael. Um, and one answer is presented to us by Rashi. It's based upon Midrashim. It's kind of perhaps uh, wormed its way into the historical consciousness of the Jewish people over time. And take a look in Rashi, uh, in uh, source number five, on that same word, mitzachek. What is mitzachek? Well, we thought it was celebration or joy or the like. Rashi says, no, 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 no. Mitzachek is not just celebration and joy. Source number five, mitzachek. 
Lashon Avodah Zarah. Oh, Mitzachek means idol worship. Commotion Amrav Yakumu Mitzachek. In the story of the Egal Zav, they got up to celebrate a very particular kind of celebration. Um, it's referring to illicit sexual relations, as it says later on uh, in Sefer Breshit in the story of Yosef and Eshet Potiphar, that Sachek be to mock me in a sexual fashion. Oh, if it doesn't mean uh, idol worship or illicit sexual relations, then it means Avodah Now, why does it obviously mean Avodah Because that's the other one of the three cardinal sins. Ritzicha, uh, murder, Gilearayot, illicit sexual relations, and Avodah Three things that you cannot do, no matter what halachically, that you're required to give up your life before you commit those sins. They are known as Yahareg Ba'al Ya'avor. You have to be killed rather than transgressing those sins no matter what. Those are the three worst possible sins. So Mitzachek, if it doesn't mean Avodah Zarah, and if it doesn't mean Gilei Arayot, then it means Ritzicha. And Rashi citing Midrashim has a proof text for that. Take a look at the end of source number five. Davar Acher Lashon Ritzicha Kamo. Yakumu Naha Na'arim Yisachaku Lifanenu. Yisachaku, which is uh, sin, chet, kuf, the sin and the tzadi switch in biblical Hebrew. So Yitzchakku and Yitzchakku are the same thing. And it's referring to a story in Shmuel Bet where killing and murder result from the schok or the schok. So the answer of Rashi is that Yishmael is just evil. Uh, and that's why he needs to be sent away. Uh, what does Sarah see? He sees the, she sees the evil of, uh, of Yishmael. Uh, Avram is blinded by his love for his son. He doesn't see the evil, but Sarah sees better. And God, of course, says, yes, of course Sarah is correct. There's a deep evil that lurks there. It's not just a simple joyous celebration of Mitzachek. It's the deeper, more sinister Mitzachek, which masks a kind of lurking evil. Therefore, he's sent away. And that gives us a very nice midrashic a uh, historic Jewish national reading of the evil of Yishmael as to why he sent away and why God agrees. And that is uh, one approach uh, to the motivation of God. Second approach, which has become common uh, amongst many of the modern commenta- commentators uh, upon Tanakh, readers of the Chumash, many of, here, many of who teach here in Michalot Herzog, uh, the claim that part of the pattern of Sefer Breshit is that what do you mean? What's the problem that one is sent away? One is always sent away. There's this idea uh, that someone in each generation is always the nidche, is somehow purged uh, in a certain way. Whether it's Avraham and Lot, or whether it, we go back to Cain and Hevel, whether it's Cain and Hevel, or whether it's Avraham and Lot, or whether it's Yitzchak and Yishmael, or whether it's Yaakov and Esau, or whether it's part of the conflict between Yosef and his brothers, there's this ongoing pattern the way providence and choice and choosing and bechira works in Sefer Breshit. It involves the, someone being pushed out, so to speak. And this is part of the mysteries of divine providence. That's just the way things work. This kind of, I don't like to use the term, because I don't really like the idea, the selection process that happens over time is just necessary uh, to have something clarified or pushed away. And this idea is associated with Rav Boyer, Zechron of and many of those who teach in Michal Herzog like this idea. It might be true. I'm not a particular fan of it, uh, and I'm interested in looking for a third possibility uh, as to what motivates HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, in agreeing to having uh, Yishmael uh, sent away. Um, so, this brings us to Let's raise a third question. 
And maybe through the lens of a third question, we might be able to clarify all of the problems that we've raised in the Shi'ur and hopefully at least learn something interesting about our story. Let's take a look at Pasuk Yadalad and let's put on our very careful uh, reading glasses or our very careful listening and let's listen to Pasuk Yadalad. Let's listen to the word music of Pasuk Yadalad. It says as follows. Vayashkem Avram Baboker. Avram got up in the morning. Vayikach. And he took something. Lechem v'chemat mayim. In this case, he took uh, these provisions. Ve'itena lagar stama shechma v'tayeled ve'yishalcha. He sent her away v'telech. And she left. And she walked off. And there was a journey. Now, let's think about this. Ve'yashkem Avram Baboker. Is that familiar to anybody? Yeah, of course it's familiar to all of you. And is Avram taking something familiar to people? Yeah, it should be. And it's kind of a journey after getting up early in the morning and taking something familiar to all of you. Well, of course it is. And hopefully all of you have probably managed to look ahead by now and you know exactly where I'm going. Uh, it, of course, in a prospective sense, reminds us of the next parak in the Torah, parak Kafbet, the story that we call Akidat Yitzchak. Uh, flip the page and you're going to find this very interesting chart here at source number 7. Uh, where what I've done with the benefit of the computer, which will pre- prevent us from having to jump back and forth in the actual Tanakh itself. Well, I think it's much more exciting when you actually do it inside the Chumash. Uh, take a look at this chart that we have here, or, which notes a kind of parallel between our story, the Girush of Yishmael, and the story of the Akedah. So we take a look on the right side of the column, which is Per Kafal of Pasuk Yudalid. Vayashkem Avram Baboker Vayikach Lechem Lechem Matmayim Vitein Halagar Sama Shechma Vatayeled um, and with the bold, I noted here the getting up in the morning and the taking, and also the going on the journey. Take a look on the left side of the column in Parakafbet, Pasuk Gimel. Uh, Avram got up in the morning and he saddled his donkey. He took, he took something, he took his two lads. Vayelech el hamakom asher amarlo haelokim, and he went off to the place that God had told him. There are two parallels here between uh, two linguistic parallels between Perak uh, Kaf Aleph, the story of the explosion of Yishmael on the one hand, and Perak Kaf Bet, the story we call Akedat Yitzchak on the other hand. And the two linguistic parallels are as follows: one, Vayashkem Avram Baboker, he got up in the morning, Vayikach, and he took something, right? Two, Vayelech. Uh, there's a journey that follows after the getting up in the morning and the taking of something. Now, if we move along further, we will quickly begin to realize that there are far more than two parallels between the two stories. We can already note, well, take a look uh, in the left side of your column here in Parak Kaf Bet, uh, Pasuk uh, Bet. Uh, or Aleph even. Here I am. It's a test. Uh, God says to him, take your son and sacrifice him on the mountain. In the story of the Akedah, there's a divine command to give up your Ben. That's the theme of the story. But if we think about it, our analysis has shown that that already happened back in Perak Kaf Aleph, right? God said, Vayomer Elohim, the same exact uh, term, 
Avram thought of Yishmael as his ben, but no, it doesn't matter. There's a divine command to give up, to be mevater, to give up a son. And the third parallel uh, between the two stories is that they both originate on some level in a divine command to give up on someone who is known as a ben. Okay. A fourth parallel uh, between the two stories. In both stories, there is a parent-child journey with, which, in, which within the course of the journey, the parent endangers the life of the child in a near, deliberate or near-deliberate fashion. Okay? Well, we all know that uh, from the story of the Akedah. Uh, take a look in Parakaf Bet, Pasuk Aleph, Pasuk Yud, on the left side of your page, and it says as follows, he took the knife to slaughter his son. So in the course of the journey, the parent endangers the life of the child in the most literal sense possible. But if you actually think about it, um, likewise, uh, in the uh, um, course of the parent-child journey in the Hagar Yishmael story, likewise, the parent endangers the life of the child. How? Take a look at Pasuk Yudalid, in Parakaf Aleph on the right hand side. She went out and she wandered around in the desert. Now, she didn't have to wander around the desert. She could have gone somewhere. What happens when you wander around in the desert? Pasuk Tetvav. She ran out of water. They became dehydrated. She threw the child down and she walked away and she said, I don't want to see when he dies. So it was her actions that uh, endangered the life of the child and it's embodied in the verb vatashlech etayelet. Now I'm not sure I believe in biblical puns, but for those of you who might believe in biblical puns, vatashlech etayelet is quite close to vayishlach avraham et yado vayikach etamachelet. Vatashlech vayishlach might actually be delivered here uh, and that's a, uh, I guess I think that's a fourth parallel between the two stories, um, that in both cases, the, uh, during the course of the parent-child journey, the parent, either deliberately or through negligence, endangers the life of the child. Fifth parallel, well, you can already do this all yourselves, can't you? Throughout both stories, the child is known as a nar. Yishmael is a nar, and Yitzchak is a nar, over and over and over. The identity of the young lad in each story is really the same. They're both Na'arim. That's a fifth parallel. And uh, one of my favorites, uh, flip the page for the moment, take a look in Parakafal of Pasuk Yitzayin on the right-hand side. Vayishma Elokim et kol hanar. God heard the sound of the youth. Vayikra malach Elokim el hagar min There's, at the last minute, a malach Elokim or Malach calls out from the heavens, an angel calls out from the heavens, and changes the course of events. That's exactly the same uh, as the story of the Akedah. Take a look in Parak Kaf Bet, Pasigir Aleph, on the left-hand side of your page. So the calling of the Malach from the heavens is the sixth parallel between the two stories, which changes uh, the events, and eventually... Uh, saves the life of the child. And I guess uh, a seventh, which I also like, is in both stories, there's a vision symbol, and the vision symbol 
provides the resolution of the primary conflict in both stories. You know this from the Akedah. Uh, so take a look in Perikafet Pasik Yedgemo. Avram's eyes are opened. He sees Vayar. He sees the Ayel. He sees the ram. He substitutes the ram for Yitzchak. And Yitzchak's life is saved. The central conflict of the story, which is the endangerment of the child by the parent, is resolved through vision, through Avram seeing. The exact same thing had already happened in the story of the expulsion of Yishmael. Take a look in Parakaf Aleph Pasuk Yutet. And she saw a well of water. In Pasuk Yutet, the conflict of the story was that Hagar had endangered the life of Yishmael. They'd become dehydrated. The Malach appears. Vatera, her eyes are opened. She sees the object, not the aisle, but the Be'er Mayim, which allows her to resolve the central conflict of the story, and they survive. I think that was my seventh or eighth parallel. And just to add to this, I know I'm piling on already. Remember, we were like disturbed by who cares what Yishmael's future is uh, that he winds up getting married? Isn't that nice? Take a look on the right hand side. Uh, in Perak uh, Kaf Aleph Pasuk uh, Kaf, Vayi Elokim et Anar Vayigdal Vayeshev Bamidvai Vihirov Akashat Vayeshev Ben Bar Param Vatikachlo Imo Isha Meretz Mitzrayim. Isn't that nice? Yishmael has profession. He gets married. Happy ending. Everything works out okay. But if you think about it, that's an eighth or a ninth parallel. I've ceased to count to how the story of the Akedah ends. Because how does the story of the Akedah end? It ends with the genealogy of of uh, of, of Nachar. And, and the genealogy of Nachor ends with, uh, take a look in Pasuk Kaf Gemel. Why does the story of the Akedah end with the genealogy of Nachor, which ends with the birth of Rivka? Because that's the wife of the lad who was endangered in this story. It's once again exactly parallel to Parak Kaf Aleph. So I'll just briefly uh, cite or repeat the nine elements that I mentioned as parallel between two stories. One, Ve'ashkem Avram Baboker and Ve'ikach. Two, the journey. Three, the divine command. Four, the parent endangering the life of the child. Five, they're both called Nar. Six, uh, this divine interference through the agency of a Malach. Seven, the central conflict is resolved uh, through vision, the Terah. Eight, uh, both stories have the happy ending of, uh, of the future wife. And I missed something along the way. Uh, there was something else I don't remember because I had nine at some point or another, but you guys get the point. Now, this kind of thing is not just mere style. It's not just mere echoing. It's not just literary artistry. There's something going on. The Torah wants us to compare these two stories in a deep way. This is what we call a hakbalah sifrutit, uh, or a literary parallel, a biblical parallel. And this needs to be understood. What, what is the Chumash teaching us when it includes all the excess detail, what bothered us earlier about the Gerush of Yishmael and the drama of the life story of Hagar and Yishmael in the desert. Why was that there at all? Well, I think we've answered that question already, my second question. It's there because it serves to create the parallel to the story we know as Akedat uh, Yitzchak. It builds the connection between Perak Kafal and Perak Kafet. But that just pushes the question a bit further. What's the point uh, of this connection? So, I'm going to tell you uh, what's popular uh, and what people have come to believe. Everybody, many of you might even know this. Oh, you know, there isn't 
just Akedat Yitzchak in the, in the Torah. There's also a story in the Torah which would be known as Akedat Yishmael. And Parakaf Aleph is the story of Akedat Yishmael. And I believe this, this uh, phrase is owed to Professor Uriel Simone, uh, who likes this phrase, and many others have adopted it. And I'm not really sure what, what it means, uh, in all honesty. Uh, I think it's supposed to mean something like Avram doesn't just have to go through the test of sending away one son. He's got to go through the test of sending away two sons. He's got to give up everything. Really, really everything. Or it might mean something like, you know, the Akedah itself, Parakaf Bet, wouldn't really mean too much if Avram had another Ben in the kiss. If he had another Ben in the pocket... Okay, so I lost the son, the new son, but at least I have the son that he's already a teenager. We've had all these years together, whatever it was, the hunting, the fishing. They probably didn't fish the baseball. They didn't play baseball. They had that connection. He had a son. So it's a necessary condition for the test of Akedat Yitzchak that Yishmael has already been given up, has already gone. And maybe that's the point here that we're supposed to realize through this parallel. Now, this might be true, but I would like to suggest a different possibility. Um, a second approach to the parallel, which, when we work it out, might actually come back to resolve our original question of the motivation of God. This is a bit complicated. I'll explain all this as I go along. Often, when we have these kinds of parallels, um, we have to look not at just the Mishutaf, the common denominator between the two stories. We also have to look at what is different between the two stories? Um, and before we get to that, I'd like to point out that over time, I've become convinced that the right way to analyze uh, the connection between these two stories is not to think of them as stories about Avraham per se. The Akedat Yishmael formulation or explanation indicates that we should think about these stories as primarily about Avraham. I'm not so sure that's correct, because certainly in um, the Parakaf Aleph story, in the Hagar Yishmael story, Avram is not the primary actor. He's not even present at all. Hagar is to some extent the primary actor. You might say Yishmael is the primary actor. And on some level I would argue that both of these stories have a certain kind of uh, um, typology, a certain kind of formulation or formula which might be recognized uh, or recognizable to us from general world literature. Uh, and that is the, the, the form of the, the coming-of-age story. We can imagine the, the following as a coming-of-age story. In the biblical coming-of-age story, the young hero goes out on a journey uh, with one of his parents. His life is endangered. Uh, but despite the fact that the young hero's life is endangered, he is saved through divine intervention. And after he is saved through divine intervention, he goes on, things work out, he eventually raises a family and becomes a great nation. In fact, both of these stories, Parakaf Aleph and Parakaf Bet of the Chumash, are primarily, I believe, these type of coming-of-age stories. In a certain way, they're about Yitzchak and Yishmael, not really about uh, Avraham. It's the story of the young lad who's a Nair at a certain age, goes out on a journey, his life is in danger, he's saved and goes on uh, to eventually build a, a great and magnificent nation. Um, or, to be more accurate, the two stories are about two pairs. It's about the Avraham-Yitzchak pair in the Akedah, and it's about the Hagar-Yishmael uh, pair in the story of Perkafalf. 
And I believe what we're actually supposed to do is we're supposed to compare these two pairs of characters. So it's to compare Avram and Yitzchak and their Nisayon on the one hand, and we're supposed to compare Hagar and Yishmael and their Nisayon, their test, their journey, on the other hand. And what I'd like to do is, I think if we do that, if we compare, uh, view these as stories about the character of these two pairs and how they fare and stand in this Masa, in this journey, in this Nisayon, I think there it will become very interesting to note some of the differences. What I'd like to do is now go back to our part to Perkaf Aleph and do a close reading of uh, uh, the text and note some of the differences, primarily focusing on Kafalf, but jumping back to Kafbet as need be. So let's go back to uh, source number seven uh, and Parak uh, Aleph, the right side of the page. Okay. Pasikidalit. Vayashkem Avraham Baboker Vayikach Lechem Vechematmayim Vaitain El Hagar Sam Al Shikma Vaetayelet Vayishlacha Vatelech. She went. She wandered around in the desert. Question for all of you. Justified or not justified? She's near Beersheba. What should she do? Well, I would say, okay, there's been a blow, but you march purposefully towards Beersheba uh, because, after all, your child's life is at risk. You do not wander around Vateta uh, aimlessly in the desert until you run out of water. So uh, uh, Hagar, in despair, uh, breaks down and actually wanders around in the desert. That's exactly uh, what happens, right? Um, let's, let's, let's continue on. Um, and by the way, is her despair justified, right? Of course her despair is justified. I'm not convinced her despair is justified. Because I'm not going to read it because we don't have time. But back in Perak Tetvav, the first time she ran away, the Malach appeared to her at a place called Be'er Lachairoi and said to her, go back and suffer because your child is going to be a great nation. She is armed with a divine promise from an angel that this child is going to be a great nation. So she might say, okay, it's a setback. Um, I, I've been expelled, but okay, we'll go to Beersheba. But no, uh, she enters into despair. She wanders around uh, and her Despair and wandering around might be unjustified given the fact that she already has an angelic promise and she endangers the life of her child. Now, in terms of this issue, this axis of journey and purposefulness, I would like to compare that to what we see later on in the story we know as the Akedah. Take a look in Parak Kafbet, Pasuk Aleph. Go to this land, bring him up as a sacrifice. Here at the end of his life, when he has only one son, it's his Ben that he loves, his only one. Uh, his entire future rests upon this child. God has told him that this child is going to be brought as a sacrifice. Should Avraham enter into despair? The answer is, Absolutely, yes. There's a divine command, explicit as can be. This is the end. Uh, the child you waited for your entire life that all of the future is wrapped up in, he's going to die. You have to sacrifice him. This is horrible. This is awful. We often forget because we know the end. Right? We often forget how horrible and awful the beginning of the story of the Akedah is. This is irreversible. It's a divine command. You might expect Avram to enter into despair. Take a look at Pasuk uh, Gimel. 
What place? He doesn't even know. Just Eretz Samaria. Uh, even though he doesn't have a specific place, he has such purpose and such determination, he somehow manages to walk right there. Uh, he goes right to the Makom. So as opposed to despair and wandering, you see, which might be unjustified in the case of Hagar because of armed with the angelic promise that this child would be a great nation. Here, Avram, where despair might have been justified because God has commanded an irreversible decision that the child will be sacrificed. Nevertheless, Avram acts with purpose so, and direction. So one distinction or difference is the purposelessness, the wandering and despair of Hagar Yishma on the one hand, and the purpose, the direction, the movement, uh, the determination of Avraham uh, and Yitzchak in the story of the Akedah on the other hand. A second distinction uh, between the two stories. The axes of sound. When we think about the Akedah, it's almost silent. Uh, there, is almost, there are almost no words exchanged uh, between the two characters, Avraham and Yitzchak. The only one conversation that we have uh, is in Pasuk Zion. Take a look at Perkavet Pasuk Zion for the moment. Father, here I am, my son. Where's the set? Pasuk Chet. And that's it. Nothing else is said. It's it's quiet. Uh, at, at the Akedah. It's not quiet uh, in the story of the Girush of Yishmael. Uh, and it's not that there are words, but there's a lot of something else uh, going on. Uh, take a look uh, in Pasuk Tet Zion, in Parak Kiamra. She sat far away from him. Al Ereb I don't want to see when the child dies. And she lifted up and she sat far away at a distance. She cried. Uh, at the moment of the Nisayon, of the test, when the child, the Nar, the Yeld is about to die, the parent in story one in Perkafalaf has broken down. She's crying and she can't even look and she can't even see the horrible thing that's about to happen. It's understandable, but the sound is the sound of crying. Now, it's not just she that's crying. Now, how do we know that someone else is crying? Well, we go on a bit further in the Psukim. Uh, take a look uh, in Pasuk Zion when the Malach calls from the heavens, and it says as follows, Don't be afraid. God heard the sound of the Nar. Now, what is the Kol Hanar? Apparently, he's crying as well. And he's not a little baby. He's not a little child. He's a nar. He's older. He's mature. He's a teenager. But he, too, has broken down. And it's understandable. They're, they're, they're wandering in the desert. They become dehydrated. The child's about to die. They've broken down. They're crying. It makes perfect sense. This, however, brings us to a third contrast. Not just that of purpose and direction. Not just the axes of sound. But I would... And this, in my opinion, is the most important one. What is the physical relationship or the physical distance between Hagar and Yishmael. Uh, well, we know, because we were just told, we just read the Psukim. She threw him down, under a bush, 
And she walks away says, I can't bear to see this. And she sits at a distance away from him. They are separate. They are apart. They are not together in any sense whatsoever. And the physical distance, I believe, is reflective almost of an existential distance on some plane between the two parties on the journey in the course of the Nisayon, in the course of the test. One of the things that shines out at us from the story of the Yaqidah is a word that appears not once, not twice, three times. You all know it. The word is Yachdav, togetherness. And it appears at very, very key juncture in the story of the Yaqidah. Take a look in Perak uh, Kafbet, uh, in Pasuk, uh, in Pasuk uh, Vav. Okay. Pasuk Vav says as follows: Ve'ikach Avraham et Atzei Ola ve'yasam Yitzchak Beno ve'ikach biyado et Eish v'tamel ve'yachush nehem yachdav. They leave the Narim behind, and before the Akedah, they go ve'elchu yachdav. They are together, and then we get the great conversation. Now let's read the conversation carefully. Pasuk Zayin: Ve'yom Yitzchak al Avraham Aviv ve'yom Raviv ve'yom Rahineni bini. Here I am, my son. Ve'yom Rahinei Eish ve'itzim ve'yasel Ola. Pasuk Chet. God will show us the seh uh, for the olah. Right? Simple. There are miracles. Miracles happen. God will show us the seh. Except, at that point, Avram adds in one extra word. Take a look at the next word. Lo'olah b'ni, my son. Now, why does he need to add in the word b'ni? The, the sentence could have read perfectly well. Right? But, no, there's something tantalizing. Yitzchak is silent. Why is Yitzchak silent? Because he knows. Rashi's interpretation, I think, is correct. That Yitzchak is not stupid. He's deduced that Olah b'ni b'ni Olah, that he is the Olah, and he knows that his father is about to sacrifice him. He hasn't heard the divine command. Maybe because of the divine command, because he trusts his father. And the next sentence, As Rashi points out, they're together before the Akedah, before Yitzchak knows. They're together when Yitzchak has this dawning realization. And they're also together in one purpose, one matara, uh, not distant from each other at all, when Yitzchak does know. They stand together in solidarity at the moment of the Nisayon, at the moment of the test. And it's exactly the opposite of the Hachak Kamachtave Keshet, the distance that exists between Hagar and Yishmael, um, in their Nisayon. What's the point I would like to make and how would I wrap up this class and what is really, where am I going with all this? I would like to say as follows. The Akedah, we of course think of this as a test of Emunah, uh, as a test of faith, the test of Avram's faith in God, the test of Yitzchak's faith in God. But it's also, I would argue, a discourse on the character of faith. Uh, what is the necessary character La'amod b'nisayon. Well, the answer is taught us by the Akedah. It's purposefulness, uh, direction. It's a certain amount of stoicism that's also necessary to stand uh, in Nisayon. And most importantly, it's yachdav, it's togetherness, it's solidarity of father and son, and ideally of mother and son as well, uh, that are what allow one to stand in the course of, of Nisayon. Are Hagar and Yishmael bad? No, Hagar and Yishmael are not bad at all. Hagar and Yishmael are perfectly normal, wonderful people, except 
they do not have the almost supernatural character or characteristics of Avram and Yitzchak and the ability to be La'amod bin Yisayon. Their reaction is perfectly normal. Despair, breakdown, wandering, crying, distance one from the other, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But Avram and Yitzchak are different. Avram and Yitzchak, Yitzchak, the son of Sarah, the long-suffering Akara who stood all the years of Nisayon, of test and trial, and yet remained steadfast and with purpose, they are different. They are the ones who are chosen to be uh, the Avot of Am Yisrael. Why? Because God knows everything. God knows the long future history of the Jewish people. God knows the suffering, the travails, the Nisayon, the tests. He knows that Jewish history will be effectively one long series of Nisayonot. And he needs the right material. He needs the kind of supernatural material of Avram and Yitzchak, those who have the character of Emunah, who have the character of Amod Sayon. That's why Avram and Yitzchak are chosen. That's why the Ben of Sarah is chosen. And that's why God agrees. Send Yishmael away because Yishmael and Hagar are wonderful. But they're not what we need for Bechirat Am Yisrael. Uh, Bechirat Am Yisrael has to be the stuff that Avram, Sarai, and Yitzchak are made of. And maybe that's the point of this entire parallel. Uh, that the parallels serve and the details serve to explain or provide a window into the motivation and justification of God in agreeing to the sending away of Yishmael. So it's a story of Bechira. It's a story of choice uh, of Am Yisrael. But not because someone just has to be sent away because that's the way divine providence works, because something needs to be purged or there's a nidcheh. I don't think that at all. Rather because of the deliberate choice of a certain kind of special character that Avram Yitzchak embodied. End of shiur.